Hello, and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. My name is Keith Bergun. It is wonderful to have you. Thank you for listening. And um, uh, today I have a great conversation interview with uh, Fabian Fisher. Uh, some of you may know him from the KB Games community or other related um, parts of our small social circle as Knock Fisher. He also writes as Ludo Culture uh, sometimes, and uh, he makes games under that uh, title as well. Um, he's a great game designer and a great game design theorist, and we have a good conversation about a bunch of topics, including, you know, stuff about Kickstarter, which uh, we've talked about a few times before. Um, and but it's especially good talking to him because he's really making uh, the kinds of games that I'm really interested in. He's taking card games and um, really. Uh, kind of pushing them into new places. And uh, yeah, I really recommend checking out his uh, Kickstarter. And um, so there's links in the show notes and all that. Uh, Other than that, what's going on? Just some quick uh, notes about what's uh, news. Um, We're doing um, every two weeks, uh, Gem Wizards uh, Tactics, um, a new build. And there's going to be one this Friday coming out, which is cool. Um, This last few weeks has been just... Uh, really polishing what's there, trying to make sure it's as bug-free as possible because, you know, you really have to, especially if your game is at all weird or complicated or hard to follow um, in terms of its rules, like, you really need to make sure that the 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 actual functionality is, like, airtight, you know, as much as possible um, because it gets really confusing, like, oh, am I experiencing a bug or do I just not know what the rules are here? So uh, I've been working really hard on that for the last couple weeks, and uh, I think this next build will be a lot play- more playable. But uh, you know, it's it's a lot of work, and so we'll see how we get where I get to. I'm also, as I probably mentioned, working on the Unity version of Universal Paperclips by Frank Lance right now, um, and that's been um, it's been a lot of work and uh, a little bit stressful because I it's really like my first programming job. Um, I, you know, I've got most of my jobs have been doing art, uh, music, sometimes uh, game design, uh, you know, consulting, but this was my first job being a programmer. Um, on the one hand, it's it's nice because it's, you know, I just, I have the, the reference right there and I just literally have to kind of copy it. But on the other hand, it's, um, it's a little weird because the game was originally made in JavaScript and I have to sort of like recreate um, that sort of JavaScript uh, kind of thing, which, you know, wasn't an accident in, in Universal Paperclips. Like, Frank specifically wanted it to be that way. If you haven't played Universal Paperclips, it's a uh, web game from a couple of years ago uh, that Frank made, which is, a, it's like a clicker, um, and uh, it's really cool. I, I finally actually beat it. I hadn't beaten it until after I had gotten the job, but um, I had played it, and I appreciated it, but uh, I just I just beat it recently, and I found myself wanting to, like, play it a second time. It was weird. You know, typically clicker games are not what I would normally think of as something with a lot of interactive merit or, um, you know, the kind of system-y game that I would normally be interested in. But the two things that make Universal Paperclips really valuable to me are, one, the fact that it's short. It's like a very limited thing, so it's not this, like, endless treadmill of uh, just, like, sort of random reward schedule type uh 
behaviorism type stuff. Um, it's actually very little. There's not much of that at all. Um, and and the fact that it has like a cool narrative actually it reminds me a lot of Portal. Um, you know, I hate puzzles. I have no interest in puzzles at all. But I like Portal a lot because Portal has it's short. It has a very good, interesting, cool little narrative, and uh, it gets in and out and to the point right away. And uh, there's some novel ideas in it. And so I I I feel like they're kind of similar in that way. Anyways, that's what I've been working on recently. Um, of course, the show is not possible to make without my patrons. So thank you so much to the patrons for uh, your support. And uh, without any further ado, uh, please enjoy my conversation with Fabian Fisher. All right, Fabian Fisher, thank you for joining me on the Clockwork Pod Game Design Podcast. I know the name of my show. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing the Clockwork Game Dev Show a lot, so I confuse the names of my two uh, little programs. But uh, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's been a while that uh, I've needed to have you on this show. Um, you are, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I wanted to make sure that also we did it while one of your Kickstarters was happening. That So we we're getting that going. So you um, did a we're, we're definitely going to talk about the Kickstarters and Crimson Company. Um, I wanted to have you overall on the show is one of the main reasons is because like over the years, I feel like you've consistently been someone who, um, you know, I relate with a lot. And I think we both like um, we both contribute to each other's theory a lot. And, um, you know, it, we have such a narrow like and I feel this way. It's not just us. I think I think everybody who's working in game design theory, they live in these little like theory bubbles where they have their own language and they have their own like sort of ways of looking at problems and um, you're someone who's, I think, in in a similar enough circle where we can communicate with each other clearly, which is, I think that's really valuable when that happens. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. There's a, there's a lot of people who do this thing. I mean, there aren't too many people who do game design theory in the first place, but those who do, they often, like, use completely different language to talk about things and come from different angles and it's it's hard to really communicate like you can exchange different viewpoints more or less but then you just gotta agree to disagree or whatever or just um yeah work in your own uh, little space um but yeah i think the like your forums and website and stuff has gathered like a community that has like a similar point of view and so we can discuss on much deeper levels than you usually could. What do you think is going to have to change in order to have there be a situation where broader conversations can take place? Like, you know, when, like, what, is it a matter of like academia sort of adopting certain things and kind of just, you know, certain words kind of winning out? Um, is it a matter of like, or, or is it like maybe a matter of just there's not enough people involved and so everything is too disconnected and, um, or what do you think? Like what's what's holding us back from being able to have a shared language like where we can talk with each other, basically? I mean, one big thing is that like, there's this, uh, this word game design literacy that like, people like Zach Gage, I think, bring up often. He wants to like raise game design literacy levels among the general public. And um, it's at a point 
where it's still pretty low in general because even even with game designers like we're just starting to explore this whole thing basically and so if you look at the general public their game design literacy is so low on average that um you you like the differentiation you would need to to like go into depth or like even have a common language to talk about things like um in general everything's just a video game or a game and um that's that's it basically that's the category that people put this these uh, interactive things into and um i think to to really go to the next level like to have a common language in the first place you have to make like a clear cut definition of what you are talking about and it's it's not all the same things i mean when you when you tell people hey um gone home is not the same thing as chess or something then they agree but it it doesn't really transfer to them realizing that uh, these two things are made by completely different people should be um criticized according to completely different criteria and um also are perceived in completely different ways like you the way you interact with one uh, game so-called game is not similar to the other one so um they are just fundamentally different and i think this point we need to get across in the first place to um yeah really start talking about the same things and then we can start going into depth like on a on a broader basis than just in like one small discord channel or whatever yeah i think i think that's really true literacy i think is a really good way of putting it i think um you know if you think about and and just as you're talking about this um you know we're still in the sort of the beginnings of exploring what's possible in the interactive you know interactive software or interactive uh, systems generally and you know to me, it's weird that like, oh, it's like, oh, a game design professor is going to come and, and talk to you. It's like, OK. And they could be they could literally be like uh, working on something that's just so different. And they have a complete uh, wealth of knowledge that's, you know, to call them a game designer. Like, for example, if they're doing like narrative design, like they do visual novels or they do tabletop role playing games. Um, to call them a game designer and myself a game designer and to expect us to have any sort of shared language or anything is like saying, uh, you know, like two wildly different uh, branches in uh, science or um, or like, a, you know, even uh, someone who's a scientist and someone who's an artist and they're both just getting called, I don't know, engineers or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, maybe it's like uh, we, we have yet to sort of grapple with the 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 massive scope of what's possible within interactive systems. And so we kind of just call them all game designers and, you know, we call them all games. This kind of points back to some of my uh, earlier like theory of, you know, uh, in terms of like trying to break things into forms. But I think even the forms are extremely coarse and, you know, not all, for example, toys is uh, as one of my forms, like, there's, there's really, there's probably 10 or 15 different things within toys that all should be thought of as their own discipline and that, that you know, are going to have their own prescriptive language and their own, uh, you know, ideas and philosophy, uh, aesthetics and all this kind of thing that, that um, 
that uh, yeah so so it's like we're just trying to ram this massive amount of information through this tiny tiny little uh, sieve and uh, so so that's uh, that's a major part of it and then also just more I also think that there's another component of it which which is like um, just the general populace having uh, having literacy on some level a little bit of liter literacy because uh, otherwise you get these like at these these two disconnected uh, places where. Um, you know, like we need bridges between our, our, uh, our places. And I think that actually, um, what I would say is that like something like game designers toolkit, that YouTube video, like sort of feels a little bit like, um, it could be a bridge because it's not getting too specific and too sophisticated, but it's kind of like bringing in a few different things. I, I guess like that's a, an example of journalism that's actually covering game design, which is not something that you see very much at all. Um, so yeah, I mean, part of the issue is that the reason literacy in general is so low is because game designers write stuff. You know, it's not that there isn't game design theory. It's just, it doesn't get uh, any traction or no, you know, the mo the, Pub, the public just doesn't know about it. Journalists don't cover it, that kind of thing. So maybe that's also part of it is like a cultural shift towards, um, you know, spreading this kind of uh, stuff to a wider audience, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And it's it's also, I've been trying in the past, like I've been writing some articles that were like very specific, but um, I've also written a lot of articles that were like aimed at like in theory someone who's just interested in game design and didn't like devote years of their life to learning about it yet so mm -hmm. um yeah I, I i have this like this wish in mind always to like educate um people about this stuff and like at least like um provoke some thoughts uh into into this direction of building up this literacy on a wide basis yeah, I think that's that's crucial. All right, so let's let's. I want to talk about Crimson Company. So this was was this your first published board game? Uh, yes. Yep. Okay, and so you did your first Kickstarter for it. Was that last year, or two years ago? Um, it was uh, two years ago. the The very first Kickstarter we did was a very tiny one for just the print and play ver version. We had like one pledge level, which was one euro and our goal was 10 euro huh and to our own surprise we made like 600 euro i think nice and had like more than 200 people and um yeah it was really like we, we recorded ourselves talking into uh our mobile phone camera basically jeez wow like really the lowest effort possible but i guess we got our point across uh, like we wrote a little vision statement basically that we wanted to create a fair card game where you're making decisions during the game and not before the game and um i guess that caught some people's attention it was just it came pretty much from kickstarter alone like we didn't even have like social channels back then we just put it on kickstarter and yeah hoped that someone would notice it so before we go into the following Kickstarters, I don't know if there was two more Kickstarters after that. I feel like there might have been, um, yeah, there, right? There were two, and now the, this is like the, the third. fourth one in total. Oh, it's the fourth. Oh, my. I didn't realize that. Okay. I hope I didn't miss any of them. I thought I supported them all, but I might have missed that first one because I don't remember that. Um, 
Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I want you to give a pitch to game designers. If you were talking just to an audience of game designers, which honestly you kind of are, <laughs> like this show is like very much, I think, listened to by game designers and people interested in that. So like, what's the pitch for Crimson Company to game designers? Like, why should they want to play it or at the very least, like know about it? Um, they should know about it because it's a very unique kind of card game. Like we we came from a CCG background more or less. Like we played a lot of Hearthstone and Magic before, and we liked the the accessibility of them and the the very focused dual character they have to them. But um, we thought we could make a better card game in in every other way basically like uh, first off we wanted to get rid of the random aspects so in our card game you don't actually draw cards from a deck to your hand you never hold cards in your hand um, it's basically everything happens uh, in, a, in a common pool a shared pool of cards and both players share the same deck and um, we, we um, also have like um, a complete focus on decisions during gameplay, so you don't uh, build your deck up front and you don't have to amass a big collection of cards to, to have a viable deck or something. It's just everything is in the game itself. Um, sort of like it would be in a deck building game, but again, we don't draw cards uh, from decks. We just um, reveal them and then you... Um, both players try to bid for the same cards and uh, that's the next cool thing is our bidding system which is um, actually kind of surprising because I'm not really a fan of bidding systems that there is one in the game in the first place <laughs> but um, it's not the classic like I bid one coin you bid two coins and I go three um, it's um, instead you basically set the price for a card that um, you want to buy and your opponent can then leave it to you for that price or they can pay you off basically and pay the price to you that's you so can, brilliant that's one of my favorite things the price, about the game basically yeah yeah that that's a fantastic and, thing so that if that that's just a good example of like a uh, non sort of tally resource kind of thing like where it's like a double-edged sword so like you get you always get something in, in those interactions. Like you're either gonna get the card or you're gonna get some money, right? Pretty much, if I recall correctly. And, um, yeah, pretty much. And um, also like it adds like, like there's a lot of dynamics going on in terms of the economy um, through that system because even if one player is very much ahead in terms of um, money in the game, things can like turn around very quickly in the end because you can basically double or half your money every turn and it goes back and forth between the players and um, it's really like evaluating the cards um, given the current situation is like is always challenging like even um, for um, Dario and myself like we both designed the game together for and even for us it's still like a challenge basically in every game there's a new situation where we're not like really sure what a card is worth and um yeah that makes it pretty 
pretty special because um yeah our cards don't have like fixed costs associated with them like you would also maybe see in ccgs or other card games like or deck builders our cards um yeah right deck builders our cards just basically have a strength value and an effect and um yeah depending on the current situation you set the price yourself so yeah you always yeah. have to take everything into account that's that's a great quality about it i also just more broadly i mean when people say uh and maybe this is another whole sort of topic of conversation that we can sort of put a pin in for later perhaps but like you know when people say card game um a lot of the time they actually mean like magic the gathering like um or like or at least ecg whereas um there beyond that there's like a whole nother world of like you know sort of tabletop card games that are not ccgs um like the serlin games or like uh crimson company um or like my own dragon bridge but then also like there's a even broader sort of thing of like well, what are cards really? Because um, on some level, um, Crimson Company, um, you could imagine a version of Crimson Company uh, that had um, like maybe some kind of, well, actually I think probably the, Ra the Ragnarok expansion, which is the current one, has a board. And um, and you could imagine that the, instead of cards that they were like sort of cardboard cutouts or punch outs or something. And at that point it's like, well, technically this isn't a card game at all. It doesn't even have cards, right? Like. Um, or, but like, what is a card? And I, I think that, you know, something like, ha to me, um, there's all this stuff that comes with having cards. Like, okay, okay, you have a card game? All right, so where's my hand of cards? And it's like, well, maybe you don't have a hand of cards. Maybe you don't draw cards. Maybe you don't, you know what I mean? Like, there's all these things that sort of come automatically with quote unquote card game. And what I really like, one of the many things I like about Crimson Company a lot is the fact that it doesn't do those things it's you know it's clearly coming from a more sort of holistic place of like no 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 this is a strategy game first it just happens to have you know rectangular pieces of paper and uh you know you can call them cards or not but it's not a card game in the sense of like uh you know uh directly being in this tradition of of like Magic the Gathering and stuff. With that said, I also think it's, you know, it's very easy to learn and like, uh, it actually does have some stuff in common with those games, like you're saying, like, uh, in fact, it reminds me a little bit of Gwent. I don't know if Gwent at all uh, came into your mind in the design process of this game, but that whole numeric comparison sort of uh, aspect of it, I think it's a much, much smarter version of what Gwent was doing, but there's something there where there's not as much like of uh, actors just booping each other to you know knock each other off the field um and it's rather instead about um but it does have that like comparison of like my numbers versus your numbers the power the, the strength that whole thing yeah uh yeah interesting uh, that you bring that up um gwen was definitely one of the inspirations like um at the time i think i thought gwen was like a ton better than Hearthstone for example like it just had more interesting stuff going on and was like more things you could do like also with the with the three lanes and stuff but then again we thought it didn't really make use of the lanes like in Gwent you had some cards that could only be placed in certain lanes or had special effects in another lane but really you were building your board quite independently from your opponent mm -hmm. and um like the lanes weren't really like 
building up against each other or anything and that's what we wanted to uh, definitely bring to crimson company that you have like the lanes directly facing each other and my right lane is your left lane basically and they go up against each other directly mm -hmm. and um yeah so just to give like the space more meaning in general and not just um, amass points through all the lanes and just um yeah just make sure you play the right effect on the right lane and whatever we wanted to like yeah make more use of space in general yeah and that's something that i also uh, a little bit would credit the whole like mobas maybe or you know um, dota likes uh with is the whole you know um lanes as a concept and we're seeing this now in uh, monster train the game that is the current uh book club uh game at my discord um and I know it's a game that you're a big fan of, and it's one of the things that it also does is it takes like Slay the Spire and sort of adds lanes and um, incorporates them in a way that, like you say, like uh, actually involves space. And with space, there's like comes this sort of natural interconnectedness um, and structure that you don't have when, you know, it's a lot of games are just... Um, are just a box you know it's like play the cards into the box basically or, or you know shoot the you know summon some minions into the box or whatever it is um and lanes are to me i see them as like the first idea like the first like uh sort of normalized uh in video game design culture for lack of a better term um like uh, approach to like creating a structural thing um inside that box and now we have these three lanes and so everything can be like sort of related to lane you know lane position and and which lane and how the two lanes connect to each other and all these sort of interconnected things and um you know i think crimson company is a good example of doing that especially when you compare it to gwent and especially especially when you compare it to the newest version of gwent which uh, i think he's even backed off more from from the lane stuff, because, uh, you know, what I see has happened to Gwent. I'd love to hear your opinion on Gwent and how it sort of evolved over the years, because I, I know you did play a good amount of it back in the day when it first sort of came out. Uh, but the way I see it is that like they they were like, OK, let's take like Magic the Gathering and this big CCG thing and put it into this like lane sort of, uh, you know, power comparison system. And then uh, over time, they were just like, uh you know what, this is really hard. Let's just make it uh, more like Magic the Gathering. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, they started out from a, from a very good place in general. I think that they were like super inspired by some existing card game. Condottier might be its name, I think. Hmm. Um, and that was like super tightly designed, had like, I don't know, 30 different cards or whatever, and that was it. It was just... A, standalone game hmm. and um yeah their their version of gwent in witcher 3 basically started from that pretty much and almost all the cards had like interesting effects going on and were unique and um they built upon that in the first gwent standalone version like when it first uh, went into open beta i think um it still had a lot of that and there were a lot of unique strategies and weird stuff you had to do like to to build up your strength points and um just in in general every deck that you could play in the game like something different and um you really had to wrap your mind around how to make the most of it and um 
then they basically got into the CCG trap more or less and realized hey we have to add cards to this constantly because right. that's how we make our money basically and uh, the more cards they added the less things they had to um, make use of basically because mm. they exhausted the system basically the system supported a certain amount of cards and they were there it was it was a, a super good game and it already had like i don't know 200 300 cards maybe but then they added more and more and see that the more cards that came out they just were worse and worse like they were then just give plus one to a unit deal one damage to a unit right buff the roll by something and yeah yeah it, and it's uh, it actually became this this point slamming game where you're just like buffing uh, like you could do different buffs like this guy buffs your dwarves this guy buffs your elves but it right. was all just like different versions of at points here at points there and mm, yeah the interesting effects were already in so yeah well this so is and this is the game worse overall this is one of the things that I uh, really uh, dislike about CCGs and not just CCGs to be fair but like you know a lot of free to play type of games and just just really the way that we sell games in general and the way that we sell content inside games um, it incentivizes it like you know people talk about like sort of soft corruption you know where like it's not like oh someone's getting bribed and then they're doing this bad thing it's more like well there just are such incentives around that like over time you just sort of start doing th these bad things and i think that that's kind of uh gwent is a good example of that where like i don't think they ever were like all right you know what forget about the whole systemic you know structural stuff let's just back off and make it like uh make it like more like you know like a hearthstone -y type of thing i don't think that probably ever happened i mean maybe it did but i think more likely it's just we know we need to keep adding cards and every time we add like new cards there's just like there's this pressure to um to remove that structural stuff as much as possible or soften it and and just like sand down those edges and eventually i think it just you know it's sort of like the logical conclusion of infinite content is to sort of not have a system because the the you know the more structural your system is like we see this in in like you know euro designer board games that you know there's only so many things that the more structural something is the the fewer amount of uh like components are gonna like work in that system that are gonna fit and like really kind of express that uh you know in a good way and so there's a balance there and i think that you know, um, some games have a good amount of content and the system's like sufficiently loose. But yeah, the, the whole premise of like, no, you're going to infinitely add content here is just like, you know, you're doomed. Like you're eventually going to, uh, you know, reduce the system down to nothing. Yeah, and that's another point actually we wanted to get away from with Crimson Company, like not making it about your collection or something like that. We just said we do a game and then if people are interested we'll do expansions um as long as we think there's stuff worth adding to the game basically mm -hmm. um but if we reach a point where we're like hmm, we we're pretty much done with this we explored the system completely 
then we'll not add more cards to just have more expansions. Like then we'll do something else. Yeah, and also expansions, and I, I want to talk to you about the Ragnarok expansion specifically, but like expansions in general don't, I mean, I wish that more people would think like, if, if you want to do an expansion, that doesn't have to mean new components, like new cards and things like that necessarily. I mean, maybe it could mean a little bit that, but maybe it doesn't mean that at all. Maybe it means some new modes. Maybe it means like a new mechanism or like a, you know, like a, a revamping of existing things like um, replacements for existing components or, you know, reworks or, you know, there's all kinds of things that an expansion could mean. It could be like nicer yeah, nicer components, things like that. Um, and so I think that, because um, I do believe that games, you know, pretty much every game could be indefinitely improved. It's just that adding things is not always improving a game. In fact, a lot of the times, uh, you know, uh, at a certain point anyway, uh, adding things starts to make the game worse as we're sort of, as we see pretty often. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to hear like, what what is the, uh, what is uh, Crimson Company, uh, what have you been like working on and what was the sort of basic idea for the latest expansion, which by the way, I should mention is on Kickstarter right now and you have $32,000 raised already, which is like nuts. Uh, you were asking for 11,000 and you're, uh, maybe it's even higher. I checked these numbers like last night, but they were at 32 last night and they're probably higher by the time this podcast goes out. Um, uh, that's just an amazing success. So congratulations on that. Um, uh, but yeah, tell me about the Ragnarok expansion. Like what's the basic like premise and what were you going for? Um, yeah, the, the Ragnarok expansion, I mean, I got to start at the previous expansion, like we already sure. did. Um, first expansion was called The Other Side. That's right, I got and it right it here. it just um, um, basically explored the base game further. Like, we had some uh, effects in the base game that were about destruction. Like, when cars get destroyed, they do something. Or um, also the, the flipping mechanism, which is a pretty cool thing, um, where you can turn cards face down um by using other card effects and if you turn them face up again with another flip effect then they trigger their effect again you can like make these chains of effects and we wanted to like expand on those two ideas more and so we basically made an expansion with almost uh, completely full of destruction and flip effects and um yeah it added a lot more crazy combos to the game and um yeah we didn't introduce a new mechanism or anything with the first expansion um but this time around we are doing that um we are adding the new keyword passive which is like it basically means a character that you play adds a rule to the game hmm. like they may say um whoever plays a card into this lane gets a coin or whatever mm -hmm. and um yeah like that we can like create even more complex and uh, a more broad variety of board states than before mm -hmm. um because yeah you can dynamically like add and take away these rules um during a match basically and that was like the one big idea for the um for the ragnarok expansion and like i think two-thirds of the cards have these uh new effects 
Um, they are all themed around uh, Norse gods, so all the god cards in the game have this passive effect. And um, yeah, then there's just a bunch uh, more cards that just are more traditional, just Viking themed cards. Um, yeah, but the, the big new thing is, is the passive keyword and it basically gives you new ways to um, yeah, make your opponent play around things they weren't thinking about before because they're not just part of the rules but they are dynamically added as new rules during during the match well and that's another yet another level of uh complexifying the valuation of a, a given card and that's something that um i think most card games actually struggle with and particularly actually uh you know deck builders not ccgs but like you know dominion for example like you can definitely just make a tier list of the dominion cards like straight up and when you see the ones on the highest uh list of the tier just buy those cards period um and to a slightly lesser extent puzzle strike that applies um but yeah the more things that you have impacting and that sounds like that passive effect is going to like change what a lot of cards mean and the value of a lot of cards like dramatically um yeah Pretty much, like the passive effects can can have game changing um, um, implications um, in in certain situations, and yeah, I mean, the the big core mechanism, so to say, of Crimson Company is like this valuation of the cards, and so everything that makes this more interesting um, is just um, definitely worth adding to the game. Um, I actually. Yeah, you mentioned other deck builders. I, I think that's kind of a big like problem in most of them because they just have these cards that like um, have different costs. And yeah, sometimes a card that costs a lot isn't as good, but usually you're doing pretty fine if you just buy the most expensive card you can every turn, hmm. like depending on the resources that you draw. And um, yeah, I, I like games that get away from this like even even slay the spire got away from this by just letting you pick a card from a set of three like a random set of three every time and yeah it really comes down to what do i already have in my deck what's my current setup which artifacts do i have you you really need to think about which card is the best for you at that time and you cannot always just refer to a teal right yeah. All right. So there's a couple of other th bigger, broad topics I want to hit up before we uh, finish today. So I'm going to move on to uh, actually generally now you've run, I think, four Kickstarters at this point. Um, uh, and so I want to ask you or just give people, including myself, because I, I intend to run Kickstarters in the future. Um, give me or some, you know, everyone some advice, some things that you've learned that maybe you weren't able to find online or that like some takeaways about running Kickstarters, um, especially for the kinds of games that you make, because like, you know, for me, I want to make the kinds of games that you make. Um, and what, what, what would you, what advice would you give me if I were to do like, like I'm probably going to do another Dragon Bridge Kickstarter at some point, like for some, some larger thing maybe, or at least, or some other game. Um, and what advice would you give me or someone like us, uh, in terms of doing Kickstarter? Um, yeah, I think like there's two big parts basically. Like the the first thing for the games that we like to make, they pretty much live 
of gameplay. So um, you really somehow have to get the point across that this is like something special. That's like a game that the world needs that the people haven't played before. And um, yeah, really, I mentioned the the print and play Kickstarter we did, which had like no production value basically. Um, but we basically just wrote a few paragraphs about why this game is different and why it's interesting and that seemed to attract some people already i mean not a huge amount but um i think if your game um is based on interactive merit basically then you really have to focus on that and also um what helped us a lot um there was that we actually funded a first edition of crimson company like um after the print and play Kickstarter out of our own pockets. So um, we produced a, a basic first edition with like cardboard coins and whatever, like just a card game box, small box. And uh, we sent that around to YouTubers and stuff and um, got like the first few reviews online. And um, those just helped a lot with our second campaign, which was for the um, deluxe version. Um, where we could just say, hey, we have, we have these reviews. They are not paid reviews. Like we explicitly even said we are not doing paid reviews like ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are all just uh, people's real opinion of the game. And um, yeah, I think we really went um, full on for this. Hey, our game is actually good. <laughs> like, that's almost like um, a rare sight on Kickstarter, I think, because the other big part of successful Kickstarters is of course the way they look and like they have a shiny video and um, shiny assets on the campaign page and um, we started doing that from the second campaign on like we actually got some um, some crowdfunding program money from the city of Munich at the time nice and um, yeah, we were able to produce like a professional video and um, hire a freelancer to to create some assets for the page and um, yeah, trying trying to make everything just look more professional. But um, still, like you you can't compete with like the big um, whatever gloom havens and what what sure uh, like making millions on Kickstarter. Um, so you should make everything look as good as possible and probably um, try not to scare people away like on first sight Um, but but after all it really comes down to getting getting the people interested that are looking for games that play differently and uh, that they can play for a long time that um, just have interesting gameplay and like that's not the biggest audience, um, I guess, or or it's at least it's hard to target. Um, but um, yeah, I think that's probably the most important thing. And still, in the in the um, other side campaign, and now in this uh, running Ragnarok campaign as well, we see a ton of people just coming back, like previous backers that already have all the stuff, just upgrading hmm. pension. Um, I think yeah, that's that's really based on just the fact that we made a good game that they can't get elsewhere, 
and um, yeah, I think that's just that's just the way to go if if you're uh, about gameplay. You just have to build it up um, over a longer time, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's funny when I started in game development, like you know, trying to sell games in one capacity or another. I originally had this, you know, view that like, well, if the gameplay is good, then uh, you know they will come, then people will like it and stuff, and. You know, over the years, I think maybe partially because of like how Oro didn't go as we expected or wished it would go and things like that. Like I definitely was like, nope, you cannot sell gameplay. Like you, your marketing material should never involve anything about the gameplay, like pretty much at all. Uh, I, I definitely had a phase where I, I thought that that was the case that like, you know, you gameplay just doesn't sell and there's no way to communicate it. People don't have the knowledge for it like we were talking about before they don't they don't know what that is you know um and you might as well like I, in fact i had a lot of people tell me uh they're like you know if you say things like uh, the game is you know deep or has emergent complexity or blah 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 they're like these are just buzzwords and uh they don't actually mean anything to people and you know to some extent i think that's oh, there's a little bit of truth there um but on the other hand it's like I think I think probably I, I was overly cautious about that, and I think that you know seeing your the success of your game, I think, and and of course you know you like you say you do the other things well, like you 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 have a good video, you have really nice assets, all all that kind of stuff. But um, you know I think it seeing the success of your game is very comforting to me because um, you know like you say it, it is you can kind of market uh interactive merit for lack of a better term um you know like you can kind of market gameplay and and i think of course that's all that's also always been more true in board games than in video games and that's also been like an issue for me is that i mostly have been working in video games and uh probably i should have been making board games all along <laughs> yeah i mean i guess the ceiling is higher of what you can achieve in video games but um it's 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 way way harder to like notice in the first place and really almost every game that's like remotely a strategy game like will will write about how deep it is and how interesting all the decisions are and everything like can't really um that's not really a marketing angle that you could take um you you would have to to go really in depth and there are just so many games like every day on Steam and the app stores and whatever. You can't really uh, expect people to read like two or three paragraphs even to really understand why this game is interesting. I think that's also like a big difference, like not just on board games, but also like Kickstarter as a platform for board games specifically, because there are just some people there that just are interested in new board game stuff on kickstarter and they will just read like for every new project that pops up or maybe at least for every project that's has like a decent amount of success um they will look into it and read up on like what makes it special and if you get them to read a few lines then it's much easier already to convey why your game gameplay is actually interesting yeah, it's interesting how, I mean, and maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but like it's interesting how board games are still, even as they are growing each year, they still have this um, 
like like subculture status and like um, community sort of um, largely based around Board Game Geek and a few other sites. But they still sort of like feel like a community, and you could you could like interact with that community, and you could like you know um, they're looking for certain things, and there's you know they they have that sort of quality. Whereas video games is more just like. Um, this massive international thing where all these huge billion dollar companies are like just pumping out all this noise and uh it doesn't feel like it's i mean to call it like a subculture is just not even remotely true it's um it it, it there are many subcultures within it of course but like um yeah it's it's just interesting how you know, um, it's it's just such a hostile environment. I feel like for um, for people who are well, really for kind of for everybody, but like uh, for uh, anything that takes like a little bit of patience or uh, you know, um, is is sort of like uh, difficult to explain or or that's trying to do something really different. Um, it's it's really unless you have uh, something else like you know that can be communicated like instantaneously um usually like fantastic graphic design and art and things like that are the things that 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 really get people to pay attention otherwise as you're saying it's just it's just such a it's 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 such a hostile environment for for um for things so so yeah that's that's definitely something so i I wanted to ask you specifically i actually got a question from the discord about um your experience making board games and your experience designing video games because you also have experience designing video games i think you have a you still work as a day job doing video game design is that right yep yep so so when you go to approach uh you know a digital game design you've made some prototypes i played one of your uh games your digital games on my stream recently um and when you go to make these games um how do you approach it differently um when it's a digital game as opposed to uh, as opposed to board games um i honestly don't think there's a massive difference for me like I think I think of the the digital realm more like as an extension of the board game realm like you can do more things you can do single player more easily you can do hidden information in a variety of ways that you can't do um, uh, non-digitally you can also of course have much more calculation going on in the background even though that's not um, depending on the game you're making, that's maybe not even what you want. Like maybe you want it to be just as understandable and readable as a board game, but you can, of course, also do things like Dwarf Fortress or whatever that just wouldn't remotely be possible um, in a board game. Um, also, you have the the whole um, UI uh, thing that that can help with keeping everything um, trackable for the players, like. For example, with Crimson Company, that was like one big thing we we always had in mind was we don't want people to track numbers in any way. Like um, the few buff effects we have in the game, they don't give um, points to cards directly. They just say when you do the scoring, you just add plus one or whatever. I see. So that you never have to keep track of anything or put markers down on stuff and 
like in a video game that's easy to do but sure it just gets like exhausting in a board game quickly and um i mean that there's the whole side of like making a tactile experience or whatever that's like i guess the the triple a of board games almost like huh. as you also can see more and more of that on on kickstarter with games having like a hundred miniatures and three books and whatever everything in the box um but yeah since that's not what really what i want to make and what i care about um there's not too much of a difference um in the way i approach the des design i mean i guess board games are mostly thought of as multiplayer games so Huh. There's a difference, of course, between single and multiplayer, but that's not really specific to digital versus non-digital. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's uh, you know, I, I I look forward to the days when those two worlds sort of interblend with each other uh, more and more. Um, I think that things like tabletop simulator uh, are good. You know beginnings of a bridge between those two worlds um and I, I look forward to um a time when we can achieve um you know like I, I envision this like future world where we all have these like nice surface tablets on a you know like a table that's like the table is like the the screen and you could it's all got touch screens and you have your cell phone so you have hidden information in there if you need it and um you know like i, I look forward to that all being like very accessible and 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 nice and at that point i think we'll have like sort of the best of all worlds where uh you know where um we can or at least for in terms of what i think you and i value i, I agree that there is a there's a there's a sort of feeling thing like an aesthetic quality of like oh this like this is like this nice little metal um you know figurine or something like that and those there's something to that for sure but i think in terms of like what we are interested in which is like rule sets and like how things interact and and interactive merit and all that um yeah i, I you know i i i agree with you that it's it, it um Ultimately, they're both going for the same things. Physical games tend to be more limited. There's a lot less you can do. You always have to be fighting against that uh, sort of fiddliness, the force of fiddliness that's like creeping up on you. Um, and um, and I, I have to say that I think Crimson Company does a great job avoiding that. I mean, it, it plays so smooth. Um, it's very easy to learn. And um, and yet, like you say, it's... it's um, it, it it does it does a really good job of avoiding the downsides of board games. So I think like, and you're a big board game player, and I actually want to ask you about um, uh, about some of your board games that you like the most that are, or maybe some games that you're playing now. I know you're playing Monster Train now. Um, uh, what else are you playing these days? Um, yeah, lot, lots of Monster Train, definitely. I think that's really nice improvement on the Slade Aspire formula, basically. Um, other than that, I mean, I'm playing actually the Crimson Company app, which is in its pre-alpha on Android currently. Oh, nice. Speaking of the... join our Discord to play it yourself, actually. Oh, man, I'm going to do that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I didn't know you were making a digital version. Have, are, have you been involved in that development, or is it just like a another team? 
um, it, it's our team basically like we wrote a concept for the digital version and we um, again got some funding money from um, the Bavarian uh, film fund basically they have like a games department so and, I, I'm getting um, from you advice number one is move to a real country <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah. um i mean it definitely helps like we couldn't have done it ourselves like we right. can like pay a programmer and pay a ui designer and um yeah like it's like not a big team but um we're uh, getting it done and it's currently already being played by a few people so that's really nice to see nice um yeah, that's cool. Um, so, so you're not playing, and there's no other board game recommendations or, or other video game recommendations you want to give. I mean, I've been playing quite a bit of or anti recommendations. Um, I'm I'm into <laughs> that too. I've been playing quite a bit of Legends of Rune Terra recently. Oh yeah, um, I'd love to hear your takes on that. It's like yeah, I think it's it's obviously it's like super well made and everything. It's like. Probably it's the best CCG you can play right now, at least until Artifact 2.0 comes out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it's ultimately I I found it's it's still a CCG. Like it's I basically could transfer like most of the things I learned playing Magic and Hearthstone to it, and I was already halfway there. Like there are some new interesting things. Like they have a little bit of a more interesting turn structure and stuff and and the way combat works is a little a little more interesting but ultimately it didn't hold my attention for very long like it, it was nice to explore the new things about it and yeah take away some some lessons from it i guess but um yeah it's not it's not different enough that i would say i, I want to play it for the next few months or whatever yeah, I agree with that totally. It feels like a, a rearranging of the chairs, but like it's, uh, you know, it feels, honestly, it feels the same to me as playing Hearthstone ultimately. Like, yes, there's those different systemic uh, things, structures, and those are good. I mean, one of the best things about them is just the fact that, um, just the very fact that they changed something to me is of value because, you know, like, like when Hearthstone came out, to me that was like very kind of depressing in a lot of ways because it's sort of just like, um, because it, 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 you know, I guess it systemically changed a little bit in terms of like converting, uh, you know, the land into mana and a few other things like that. But generally, like, it's so similar to Magic that it sort of hammers home this idea that like, this is what a card game is like. What? What's the problem? Whereas like, at least in Runeterra, like they have that like, oh, now you have this attack token and you have this little like summoning area. And, uh, you know, the, the way that um, units like uh, you defenders and all that kind of stuff, like... It at least like I think opens the door for rules, you know. Like it makes people sort of think like, okay, I, you know, if I'm gonna make a card game, maybe, maybe I could have a new thing called a blankety blank token, and uh, maybe there's this other zone that you put cards in. Like it's sort of uh, that's one thing I'm always looking for. Like not so much like is the game fun, but like does the game, um, what does the game sort of like say about, or what does it suggest or invite in terms of uh, future games? You know, and that's actually one of the best things I can say about Artifact, even much more so than, you know, as, as bad as anyone wants to say Artifact was when it came out, um, 
or whatever. I, I don't have strong feelings about it because uh, uh, various reasons. But like the 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 thing that you can definitely say about it is that it shakes up that CCG thing and it invites new rule uh, ideas and possibilities. Like, oh, wow, you have three boards. You know, like you have uh, these, you know, the, the towers and the way that, uh, you know, when you destroy a tower, it's not the end of the game, but that tower now becomes this really high health uh, tower. And if you could destroy that again, you know what I mean? Like weird rules, yeah. like specific rules like that, that, um, that invite uh, thought on, you know, and creativity, I think. Yeah. And like also one of the big things I think with Artifact was the initiative system, like that you basically play one thing or do one action and then your opponent gets to do one action and whoever took the last action like uh, then goes second in the next turn and that changed a lot like in in magic or hearthstone you have these turns where one player just plays seven cards in a row and the whole board changes completely and mm. like it's just it doesn't feel interactive it feels more like you're you're doing your thing your opponent is doing their thing and um yeah i think i think that's uh like gwen also did it with the with the back and forth that's a big step towards like more interesting um inter more interesting interactive experience basically and rune terror does that as well right because you each play yeah. one card yeah. yeah and and what that does is to get into a little bit of like theory is that it changes the amount of uh, you know, because like when someone hits you with like, oh my God, now there's seven new cards in my face. It's like, um, it changes the, it, it sets the parameters for how much, like, because that new information that's coming out at you is like, you know, randomness. It's like sort of input randomness, you could say. It's like, oh, this new card now I'm facing, right? But like, if you all of a sudden are facing like seven new cards, that's a massive amount of variance in that input randomness as opposed to like, maybe they could just play zero new cards, you know? So setting it so that either they're gonna play zero cards or one card, um, that's, that's actually like tampening, you know, it's putting a container on the amount of uh, input randomness that can be hitting you at one turn. Yeah. Yeah, and I think things like that you can definitely um take away from from those games like even if you're not going to play them for months on end but um, there are small incremental steps forward and like you can make a totally different game and like still learn from them like for for crimson company we definitely did that we just we took things from from different games like also i should do a shout out to prismata probably which Hmm. also uh, inspired the game and like how it dealt with uh, the economic side of things and how like every match was different based on which units come out and um, it also had this um, strength comparison thing a little bit like it also had more direct interaction between the units but um, like overall it was a pretty strong system I think and like uh, definitely one of the inspirations as well yeah, Prismata. Everyone should definitely check out Prismata if they haven't before. Um, yeah, and uh, we're running a little bit out of time, but I, I, you know, I want to just mention that you also do a lot of game design writing. Um, you have articles. Uh, your two most recent articles are um, about uh, insta tournaments um, and uh, planning and pre-game decisions is another one, which I think we've talked about a little bit that you want to avoid pre-game decisions. 
um, in terms of, in Crimson Company. Actually, I want to really quickly ask you about that. Um, in terms of pre, well, what is your philosophy on pregame decisions and how does it pertain to like asymmetric character or faction selection and things like that? Uh, and how much does it just apply to like things like collectible card games or um, things like setup phases in board games? Um, so in general, I would say there shouldn't be pregame decisions, basically. Mm -hmm. um, like the, the problem with pregame decisions is that they just they have no context, like no real game context. You can just refer to like this weird meta space that just like assumes, okay, players are doing this and that on average, so I should probably be doing this other thing that counters that or whatever. Right. And then you just hope to run into the thing that you're trying to counter and games are basically decided on the first turn based on the decks you blindly picked or um, yeah, the other, the other big problem is that um, your game plan is basically baked into your pre-game decision thing so it really narrows down what you can do during a match like if you're playing a super aggro deck in in a ccg you you just do your thing like you cannot deviate from that and you cannot react to what happens during the match um so yeah in 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 these contexts i think like especially if if you're defining your strategy by your with your pre-game decisions then i think that's like almost always bad um if you just pick a character and that character can still do different things i think it's it's already much better but um yeah even then i'm i think it's debatable whether or not you should really pick your character or just like get assigned a random character because like if you can pick then you're probably always going to play the same character because you're comfortable with it or if there's a tier list maybe you pick the strongest character and like you get some problems like if if you're going into this whole picking thing like i'd rather have it be you get a random character and then you play like a best of three or best of five or whatever and just try to make the characters balanced enough so that it won't matter too much in the end yeah yeah I, I mean obviously i think you know that i i agree with all of that like um the uh, i mean the, the one issue with like if you think about like characters and factions or whatever in something like magic or rune terra is the problem is as you say like yeah this is a rushdown deck and that's like well there there absolutely should not be a rushdown deck like that shouldn't be a thing at all at the very least what I will say is that at least if each deck could do two points of the triangle, um, you know, like this deck is really good at rushdown and really good at defense or really good at rushdown and really good at econ or something like that, then at the very least, it seems like they could always, I mean, they still kind of can get soft countered, but at least they could, you know, like uh, hit someone else's rushdown with their rushdown or, or whatever, or hit someone else's econ with their econ. They can always at least match the opponent. Um, but yeah, the, the problem is that those games, they're honestly, they're just like, they're too, there's not enough space. There's not enough, like, you couldn't make a really a deck that can do all those things. There's only enough space for them to do one strategy in the system itself, it seems to me. Um, 
But yeah, I also hate that um, I, I hate picking characters and stuff so much in games. Like I play League of Legends still and every single time that it's like, I have to pick a character now, it's agonizing because one of the worst things about it is that there's always that feeling of, do I pick the thing that I know I'm already really good at and that like I have a higher chance to win? Or do I pick a new thing that I haven't played as much but I want to explore but I, I am less good at. And so you literally have to make this choice about how well you're going to perform versus how much of the system you want to explore. That's awful. Like players should just naturally be, there shouldn't, players shouldn't be put in that position where they have to make that choice. They should always get the ability or really be forced to experience the whole game, not just one tiny shred of the game. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, you may say that you can't really force players and they should play the way they like, but I think, yeah, if we're coming from this interactive merits standpoint, then it's really all about you just want players to, to like learn about all the edges of the system and you want them to see uh, different characters and not always the same one. And like this, this whole, uh, like, power gaming thing actually detracts a lot from that like you have to pick the strongest character you have to pick the character you're good at this all takes away from this uh, exploration aspect and it's like it's actually i've written another article about like this really different mindset like between wanting to learn and just to get better by playing a game and just improve yourself versus the other side of the coin of wanting to win and just um, yeah show your dominance over other people basically and like i think this just mirrors in this um, whole character selection debate like um, i think if you're if you're more going for the exploration and learning um, process then you really should be on the side that there's no picking uh, up front and just yeah you're just exploring by playing and maybe just get a random character and then you get to know them all over time and you're just yeah improving your own understanding of the system without too much thinking about maximizing every little detail i want to respond to one thing you said which is like you know oh maybe you know there's this idea that like maybe you shouldn't be able you shouldn't like force players to do blankety blank and you should let them sort of play the way they want all we do as game designers is force people to do stuff like right like that's what a rule is a rule says it's it's gonna be this way i'm forcing it to be this way and so for example like the example i always give is like you know usually if you know like let's say it's a uh you know uh player versus monsters or whatever type of situation like oro for example like you can't pick which monsters you're going to be facing against. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things you can't pick. And we just have this one special cultural exception where uh, there's an expectation that you will be able to pick your powers or your faction or whatever. Um, and, and I feel like we're that cultural. And I think there's, there's benefits to those kinds of things. I'm not against those kind of things, um, but uh 
it's interesting to note, I think, that, that you know, we absolutely, of course we can force anything. We're like, we can do anything we want. And it's just that there is, I think what you're pointing at is this strong cultural, um, like, uh, belief and practice that, uh, that, you know, I should be able to pick my faction that I'm going to play or my character or whatever. Like, there's, uh, and that's just an interesting um, kind of like accident of history that has happened um, that now we have to sort of work around in some way. Yeah, and I mean, of course, it's also interesting that in board games you can like do that to a lesser extent. Like, people will have their house rules or just ban certain cards that they don't like or whatever. You you cannot really. Uh, change anything about it as you could in a digital game but um, yeah I mean in general of course I agree with all that but um, yeah there's always this like balance you have to find between um, actually like just doing that and forcing the things upon players because you're convinced they are actually making the game better and then on the other hand like having the normal video gamey stuff that people expect and know and you can pick la 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 mm -hmm. and um i mean that that's also attractive for a lot of people and accessible because they know it and like you have to find a balance like uh, where you're not scaring people away but also like educating them a bit maybe by making a, a well-designed game and um yeah it's like it's it's not black and white this is yeah this is the struggle of art always or creativity is that how do you you have to meet people where they already are and take them to a new place at the same time and um it's a, it's always a struggle it's always hard and yeah there you have to make concessions it's not going to be perfect uh, I'm making a game with asymmetric factions right now. Um, I'm currently thinking, you know, with Gem Wizards Tactics, I'm currently thinking that, like, there's going to be one mode that's, like, you know, competitive mode or whatever, where you just get assigned a faction um, randomly. But then I think also it probably would be a good idea to have another mode where players can pick them because, honestly, for no other reason other than people expect to be able to pick them and um and you know and 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 it's true that they they want that now i mean want is a weird thing because people sort of want what ha what you know what already has been done and and so so they they um you know like you have to that's a part of like sort of meeting them where they are i think maybe All right. Well, that's pretty much most of what I had to talk about today. I want to encourage everyone to go. Um, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Go to Kickstarter. Go check out the Ragnarok expansion. Um, if someone has yet to back any of your Crimson Company uh, Kickstarters in the first place, they can get the whole game with this, this uh, expansion. Or do they? How? What? What do they need to do? Um, yes. Yes. There. There are different options for like people who already have stuff, and there's also options for. People that are completely new, they can just get the whole box with both expansions and the base game. Nice. That's super awesome. All right. Well, um, I'm really pumped for that. Um, congratulations so much on your incredible success there. I'm really looking forward to everything you do. Also, everyone should check out uh, Fabian Fisher, a.k.a. Noct Fisher, a.k.a. Ludo Culture. Uh, 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 the blog, I think it's called Ludo Media. Is that the name of the blog? Yeah. 
or Ludo culture? Um, no, it's Ludo culture. Like I have a German address, but there are also my English articles on there. Right. Um, yeah, Ludo Media is like a series of of game design reading tips I do basically. That's right. Yeah, those are cool. I'm gonna link to those as well in the show notes. All the stuff will be in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is really fun and cool and um, looking forward to what you do in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.